Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Welcome to the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and I think Yale is playing football against some school from Cambridge this month. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Rodri Jeffries-Jones about the history of the FBI. But um, in practice, these um, institutional uh, rivalries uh, continue, turf wars continue, and um, uh, jealousies are very difficult to um, extinguish. And I think that while the uh, unification reform was a good idea in principle. It's been uh, undermined by an, a number of practices. And Russell Korobkin about the current and future legal issues surrounding stem cell therapy. Almost all Americans are opposed to reproductive cloning. Uh, and this, is, this includes all of the political leaders, both uh, Democrat and Republican. Uh, what, and it has nothing, and reproductive cloning has nothing whatsoever to do with stem cell research. What stem cell researchers want to do is create an embryo in that way, but then use that embryo to create, not a baby, but to create embryonic stem cell lines. Stay tuned. The FBI has a long history in the imagination of the American public, beginning with the G-Men of the 1930s, led by J. Edgar Hoover. In his new book, The FBI, A History, Roger Jeffries-Jones goes back to the Reconstruction era to look at the earliest beginnings of the Bureau, up to their current fights with organized crime and the war on terror. Roger Jeffries-Jones is professor of American history at Edinburgh University. His previous books, The CIA and American Democracy, Peace Now, American Society and the Ending of the Vietnam War, and Cloak and Dollar, A History of American Secret Intelligence, were also published by Yale University Press. Roger Jeffries-Jones, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. That's a pleasure. Uh, officially, the FBI recognizes its founding in 1908, but you write that 1871 was just an important year for the Bureau's history. What happened that year that makes it so important? In uh, 1871, the newly formed Department of Justice sent federal detectives into the South to combat the Ku Klux Klan. The background is that the North or the Union had won the Civil War, and Congress had legislated to give African Americans civil rights including the right to vote. The federal government kept federal troops in the South to combat attempts by the Ku Klux Klan to prevent African Americans from exercising their newly won rights, but they could not find the Knight Riders. Uh, They just hid in the woods. And uh, Klan terror was a a serious problem. Uh, There are many examples of this. Just to give a couple, on one occasion, they they stripped and flogged uh, an elderly white lady to terrorize a family. Uh, on another occasion, they lined up African-Americans on a bridge and used them for a target practice. Well, to combat this, the Attorney General, uh, Amos T. Ackerman, brought in a man called Hiram C. Whitley to try to care- take care of the situation. Hiram Whitley was a colorful but uh, neglected character. He stood six foot ten ho- tall. He had been a slave catcher before the Civil War. He returned 13 slaves to captivity in in Missouri. But then in 1869, he became chief of the Secret Service that uh, 
Lincoln had established in his final cabinet meeting and uh, took on the moonshiners, the distillers of illegal whiskey in the Blue Mountain uh, area. So he knew the area where the clan operated, and indeed many of the clansmen were um, moonshiners as well as former Confederates. So Whitley took over the uh, Treasury's Secret Service in um, 1869, and um, in 1871, uh, the Attorney General, uh, Amos Ackerman, hired the whole of the Secret Service to get out of the Treasury Department and put it to work on winkling out members of, of the Klan. So these Secret Service agents, uh, operating with the help of very courageous uh, local people, in including, not surprisingly, the help of local Af African-Americans, uh, did a good job of finding out exactly where the Klansmen were hiding out. To, to, to give uh, one example, um, a, a blacksmith who was um, an African-American and was shoeing the horses of local uh, white people had a shrewd suspicion who the Klansman might be, and he put a nick in one of the horseshoes so that the federal authorities could track the horse and thereby track down the Klansman concerned. Uh, unfortunately, in this case, um, the uh, African-American blacksmith was, was killed because the Klan found out. But the ultimate outcome was that the Klan was, was crushed, now, this didn't mark the start of a continuous Department of Justice uh, effort in the area of law enforcement, because the Secret Service thereafter returned to the aegis of the Treasury Department. And indeed, the FBI will be quite right to celebrate its centennial in 2008. But the 1871 episode is still important, as it shows the origins of federal uh, policing were pro-African-American and uh, politically correct. I found one of the interesting echoes with today's uh, today's uh, newspapers is the fact that in between that uh, time, 1871, and the investigation of the Klan, in 1908, uh, when the Bureau was officially founded, the government tended to use private contractors for investigations. And we know it hasn't really worked out that well in Iraq. How did it work out in the late 19th century? Well, it is a significant question for the reason you uh, suggest, because it heralds the growth of the private security uh, industry today with all those uh, problems in Iraq. Now, between 1885 and 1892, there were 28 cases where the federal government employed private detective agencies, mainly the Pinkerton Agency, to do uh, government work. Now, one important reason for this was the distrust of federal agencies uh, in America for states' rights reasons, and as you would expect, uh, in the South, this uh, distrust was particularly acute, uh, and uh, more generally also because of a devotion to laissez-faire and uh, distrust of uh, big government. <coughs> but um, in terms of what actually uh, happened, m most significant perhaps was the local practice of hiring Pinkertons and other private agencies to investigate labor unions and to police uh, strikes and lockouts. In such cases, uh, private contractors' men were mostly deputized, making them agents of government. But prior to the notorious 1892 shootouts between Pinkerton men and workers at the Homestead Steelworks outside Pittsburgh, the sheriff of Allegheny County refused to deputize the Pinkertons, and yet they were employed to confront the workers and 10 people were killed, giving rise to the uh, popular refrain, God help them tonight in the hour of their affliction. Play for him who they'll never see again. Hear the poor orphans tell their sad story. Father was killed by the Pinkerton men. Now that episode in 1892 gave rise to 
major congressional investigations and to laws banning the public use of private detective agencies. In that sense, the use of private contractors to enforce public order was a disaster. Uh, nevertheless, it continued on, on a, a more minor scale. For example, in 1894, Attorney General uh, Richard Olney again used Pinkertons to run an investigation uh, in the South. So I think you can see a line stretching back uh, from the present to the 19th century. And indeed, in the 1930s, there was a, another major investigation of the use of private contractors in industrial relations, the La Follette Inquiry. Let's bring this discussion up to the 21st century. Um, one of the things that's been argued is that a contributing factor of the inability of the U.S. government to stop the 9-11 hijackers was the rivalry between the FBI and the CIA. Could you talk a little bit about the genesis of this, of this rivalry? <clears throat> well, the genesis of the um, uh, rivalry uh, really goes back to the National Security Act of uh, 1949, uh, 47, I'm sorry, uh, when the... CIA was established to handle matters of foreign intelligence, including uh, counter-espionage and uh, counter-terrorism outside the territorial limits of the USA, whereas the FBI was given the job of looking after uh, domestic matters only. Now, th this made uh, J. Edgar Hoover very angry, because the FBI in the Second World War had been given the job of running counter-espionage <clears throat> in the, the whole of the Americas south of the Rio Grande as well as in the United States. <clears throat> but as part of the 1947 deal, he was stripped of his uh, responsibilities in uh, Latin America and regarded this as a terrible slap in the face. The, to such a degree, in fact, that he refused to hand over his well-developed and, and indeed highly successful uh, spy network in South America to the uh, CIA. The reason he gave was you couldn't trust the CIA because they were insecure. Um, but he compounded this by refusing to conduct security checks on CIA personnel. He refused to go along to uh, meetings uh, convened to uh, arrange liaison between the two agencies, the CIA and the FBI. Now, it has to be said that there was a great deal of lack of cooperation on the part of the uh, CIA uh, 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 as well, and it became a uh, recognized problem uh, by, the, by the 1960s and 1970s. There was a major congressional investigation in the 1970s which um, looked into this. There were two investigations in the Clinton administration which singled out lack of FBI and CIA cooperation as, as being important. And, of course, when you get to the 9-11 um, uh, uh, disaster, it's important, uh, once again, for example, in 2000, the year 2000, uh, the FBI retrospectively uh, claimed the CIA knew the identities of some of the terrorists who subsequently became involved in 9-11, uh, but because of petty bureaucratic jealousies involving the uh, FBI, uh, simply didn't pass the names on, and so the FBI wasn't able to follow them up. They might have been able to prevent 9-11. That was the FBI story. But the uh, CIA went into denial about this and said um, that they had passed on the uh, information. So that kind of uh, bickering has really been quite damaging. Uh, have recent government reforms improved the relations between the two? Uh, th there's no great uh, evidence that the relationships between them have been um, improved. There's still uh, recrimination uh, going on. 
In terms of the reform of the intelligence uh, community, you could say that the current Bush administration has the right idea in principle in that uh, they have tried to introduce a greater measure of uh, unity in the uh, intelligence community, including the counterintelligence community, which looks after uh, anti-terrorism. For example, the 2004 Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act established the new office of Director of National Intelligence, uh, which reformed the CIA, requiring it to pay more attention to uh, intelligence analysis rather than just go out and um, arrest people, but also tried to introduce the idea of an intelligence czar, as it were, who would be able to knock heads together and get the FBI and CIA to uh, cooperate. Uh, John D. Uh, Negroponte was uh, was given this job. But um, in practice, these um, institutional uh, rivalries uh, continue, uh, turf wars continue, and um, uh, jealousies are very difficult to um, extinguish. And I think that while the uh, unification reform was a good idea in principle, it's been uh, undermined by an, a number of practices. Um, for example, um, the gutting of independent uh, assessments at the uh, CIA and the politicization of intelligence. And one thinks here particularly of the controversy over weapons of mass destruction uh, in, in Iraq has generally undermined and demoralized the whole of the intelligence community with knock-on effects for all the agencies within it, within it including the um, FBI. The premature resignation of Negroponte earlier in this year, in 2007, to take on what was, after all, the number two job in the Department of State, tended to diminish the the, the standing or the status of the uh, intelligence community. Uh, People also uh, complain about the uh, enormous size of the bureaucratic uh, community and the uh, confusion which resides within it. So... Within that kind of context, perhaps it's understandable that individual agencies uh, look after their own patch rather than trying to cooperate with uh, other agencies. The FBI A History is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Rodri Jeffries-Jones, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. Stem cell research and therapies hold great promise, but engender large controversies. In his new book, Stem Cell Century, Law and Policy for a Breakthrough Technology, Russell Korobkin looks at the current and future legal and policy issues around a set of discoveries that could revolutionize medicine in the 21st century. Russell Korobkin is a visiting professor of law at Harvard University and professor of law at UCLA. Russell Korobkin, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Uh, thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. Your book, Stem Cell Century, Law and Policy for Breakthrough Technology, looks at both the current and future legal and policy issues surrounding stem cell therapy. Let's start with policy. Given that we're still in the beginning stages of political discussions about this technology, how would you characterize the reasoning behind the main political positions regarding human embryonic stem cell research? Well, that's a very interesting uh, uh, question, because it's hard for me to know exactly where the um, uh, where people's positions come from. But... Uh, of course, the main battle that you've read about a lot in the media over the last several years has been about the question of whether it's uh, ethical to uh, do research that requires the destruction of five-day-old embryos. 
uh, to create embryonic stem cell lines. And I think, you know, roughly the battle lines on this question are drawn by whether uh, you think that a five-day-old embryo has the same moral worth as a, uh, what I call a person, right, someone after they've been born like, like you or I. And um, uh, if, you, uh, if you do uh, believe that an embryo has the same moral worth as a person, then it's, it's quite uh, logical to oppose any research on embryos that you wouldn't uh, think would be permissible on people. I think the better view is that a five-day-old uh, five embryo, uh, while it might have some moral worth, does not have the same moral worth as a person, and therefore, it, um, uh, therefore experimentation to try to uh, find cures for some of the most uh, um, some of the most terrible diseases that we have today uh, is is quite justified. But uh, but I think that's the that's the touchstone of that argument. In your book, you uh, you take a look at both the uh, Bush administration's reasoning behind their decisions regarding human human embryonic stem cell research, and then current the current position of Congress. Um, are there perhaps some? I guess I want to say some leaps in reasoning that really don't make sense when you look at them closely. Well, yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm quite critical of President Bush's uh, uh, policy on federal funding of, of embryonic stem cell research, but I'm also critical, as 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 you allude to, of uh, the bill that Congress has uh, pass, passed twice now and has been vetoed uh, twice by uh, President Bush. So uh, President Bush's reasoning uh, has, has a number of problems. Let me, let me touch on one, which is that if you really believe that an embryo, a uh, five-day-old embryo uh, that doesn't have um, any consciousness, uh, it doesn't have any uh, neural structure, it doesn't have uh, any of the types of abilities that we think of as humans normally having, uh, it only has human DNA. If you think that embryo has the same moral worth as a person, uh, then logically uh, you ought to oppose uh, allowing anyone in our society to do research on uh, that embryo. But the Bush policy only concerns federal funding. Uh, President Bush uh, has never suggested that he would support a law that actually made it illegal to do research that destroys embryos. So, so that, that's just one of the ways in which uh, the president's policy is internally uh, inconsistent, uh, not just um, uh, even if you agree with his uh, premise about uh, the moral worth of embryos. Uh, on the other side, Congress has twice passed, passed a, a bill called the Stem, Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act. And, uh, of course, it's been very um, big news when the president twice vetoed uh, that bill. And that bill would allow... Uh, federal funding of any of research on any uh, embryos, uh, as long as the embryos are extra embryos from in vitro fertilization clinics. That is, they're the embryos that were created when uh, a woman or a couple uh, went into a fertility clinic to get in vitro fertilization, but then were ultimately not used as the in vitro in the in vitro fertilization process. But the Stem Cell Research Enhancement Act would not um, permit federal funding of scientific work where scientists might create uh, an embryo specifically for the purpose of deriving stem cell lines for research. And the, uh, the idea here is this distinction between discarded embryos and created embryos. And I think that there's this, um, that when you first think about it, you may be uh, tempted to think that there's a, a moral distinction between using an embryo for research that's going to be discarded anyway and creating one for the purpose of doing research. But I think that this, this reasoning is flawed because all of the extra embryos that are created in in vitro fertilization clinics 
uh, don't need to be created, strictly speaking. Uh, in vitro fertilization clinics could create embryos uh, only at the number that they're going to actually um, uh, insert into a woman's uterus to try to produce a baby. But they create lots more embryos than they need because then they can choose the best ones, and that increases the likelihood that the patient is going to succeed in getting pregnant. Now, I'm not against this in any way. I think this is perfectly appropriate, um, uh, per perfectly appropriate for in vitro fertilization clinics to do. Um, but what it suggests is, is that we routinely create embryos knowing that they're going to be uh, destroyed because we know that the number of embryos that are created for in vitro fertility treatment are not all going to be implanted for the purpose of trying to commit a baby. If that is acceptable, and again, I think it is, but if you think that's acceptable, then uh, it doesn't really follow logically to say scientists should not be able to create embryos in order to create uh, stem cell lines for the purpose of stem cell research, which again, uh, this is not just for the fun of the scientists. This is a technology that has a tremendous amount of potential to perhaps cure uh, you know, uh, uh, many uh, of the worst um, type of degenerative diseases that uh, affect um, uh, nearly every family in our society in one way or another. Before I move on to these questions about the development of the industry, because that's really, I think, a, a lot of part of the book are the legal and some economic questions around how the industry will develop. You spent a chapter talking about cloning, and I think that is another, one might say, hot-button issue for people because it's easy to create the visual image of scientists cloning human beings as reproductive cloning. Could you talk about a little bit about how your book views cloning and what are the issues around it that maybe people haven't thought about? Yeah, so it, the most important thing is a first step for people to understand is the difference between reproductive cloning and therapeutic cloning. So both start the same way. So these two things are, uh, these two types of technologies are related uh, in that both start by taking uh, the nucleus out of, a, out of an egg and replacing the nucleus with an adult cell from a person, like say a, a skin cell that could come from, from your arm or my arm. Uh, and then convincing the egg to believe and behave as if it had just been fertilized by a sperm cell rather than had its nucleus replaced with an adult cell. If you can get the egg to do that, to start behaving like a, uh, a zygote and to start um, uh, the process of cell division, uh, then you can, in fact, create an embryo uh, using this technology. Now, at this point, this is where therapeutic and reproductive cloning depart ways rather drastically. So reproductive cloning would entail taking this embryo that's created in this way and inserting it uh, in, a, in a woman's womb for the purpose of trying to create a baby. Uh, almost all Americans are opposed to reproductive cloning. Uh, and this, is, this includes all of the political leaders, both uh, Democrat and Republican. Uh, what and it has nothing, and reproductive cloning has nothing whatsoever to do with stem cell research. What stem cell researchers want to do is create an embryo in that way, but then use that embryo to create, not a baby, but to create embryonic stem cell lines that, again, will be used for research uh, just in the same way that these leftover five-day-old embryos from fertility clinics can be used for research in order to try to uh, learn more about and, and hopefully find a cure for degenerative diseases. Um, 
So because therapeutic and reproductive cloning share this method at the beginning of the process, there's a lot of confusion uh, with uh, anti-stem cell research uh, activists claiming that stem cell researchers are doing cloning or want to do cloning. And that's true in a sort of in a, in a trivial uh, uh, rhetorical sense because it's, I think, not improper to talk about therapeutic cloning as a form of cloning, but it's not cloning a person. It's just cloning a cell for the purposes of research. So that's what uh, stem cell scientists want to do. And the reason that they want to create embryonic stem cell lines through the therapeutic cloning process is because then, in theory, you could use that process by, and start with a cell from someone who has a particular illness that you're trying to cure. And then if you can create a stem cell line that can be used to help treat that illness, then you won't have the problem of immune system rejection of those stem cells because the, um, the original cell that you've cloned has the same, um, has the same uh, uh, what they call uh, HLA profile. That's the same protein profile. Uh, as the cells um, that uh, in the body where those, uh, that stem cell line is going to be used for treatment, and you won't have to put the person on very serious and very dangerous uh, uh, immunosuppressive drugs uh, like we have to do when somebody gets an organ transplant today. So this is a very important uh, link in the process by which we hope to go from laboratory research on stem cells, which is what we're doing now, to hopefully one day five, ten years down the road, uh, move into the clinic and, um, and be able to actually use stem cells to treat people. Uh, but this confuses a lot of voters when people start bandying about the term uh, cloning. So I think the issue here is that if you think it's appropriate to use embryonic stem cells for research, um, uh, then the idea of creating them, those uh, embryonic cells through the cloning process uh, doesn't bring uh, any really any other uh, significant uh, harms along with it. Uh, again, the, the idea is not to create people this way. It's just to create cells this way. Um, now, there are some arguments that, you know, there, there are some plausible arguments that it's worse uh, in some uh, ethical or practical way. It's worse to create embryonic stem cell lines through this therapeutic cloning process. I think the, the best of these arguments is that it could lead us down the slippery slope towards reproductive cloning. That is, if scientists create um, stem cell lines uh, through the therapeutic cloning process, then you will have embryos in laboratories, uh, very young, three-day, four-day, five-year-old embryos in laboratories, that in theory somebody could smuggle out of a laboratory and could smuggle into an in vitro fertility clinic and... Um, used to actually create a baby that would, at that point, be a clone. Uh, but uh, in, in a sense, this argument uh, really proves too much, because even if we don't permit therapeutic cloning in this country, the technology is going to be developed and perfected in other countries. And someone could just as easily steal, a, uh, steal an embryo that was created in this way from a laboratory in some other country and bring it here and smuggle it into an IVF clinic and use it to create a baby, uh, as they could uh, steal one uh, out of a laboratory in this country. So um, to the extent 
that doing therapeutic cloning creates this risk down the road of making reproductive cloning maybe easier for someone to do uh, illegally without a lot of notice coming of it. It's really not going to make it that much easier. Uh, so it really doesn't serve much of a purpose, in my opinion, to, to prevent it on, the, on those grounds. Now, there are, of course, other arguments. Other people uh, um, uh, object um, uh, to the idea of creating uh, embryonic stem cell lines through this process because um, on the grounds that using, a clo using the cloning technology uh, to create a, a new embryo is in some way like playing God or exceeding our... Um, um, the appropriate boundaries of what, of what people should do. Uh, but whether or not you think that this argument is accurate in terms of uh, when you're talking about reproductive cloning, it just really doesn't have a lot of purchase, I don't think, when you're talking about just the cloning of cells. Because we use all other kinds of, um, we do all other kinds of things in laboratories where we uh, create our, and we uh, manipulate uh, and work with cells of various kinds, and, and this type of research is really no different than that. So, so, um, so that argument doesn't uh, really hold up well either. Uh, and then also in the book I talk about some constitutional problems with uh, banning or prohibiting therapeutic cloning, not just refusing to fund it at the federal level uh, like we do now, but Congress has considered uh, in the past several years a bill that would actually make even therapeutic cloning, cloning of cells, illegal um, in a way that Congress has not considered making embryonic stem cell research itself uh, in its basic form illegal. And so when you talk about making things illegal at the federal level, then you raise a number of, of constitutional uh, problems, um, such as whether you're uh, interfering with uh, basic rights to, uh, to life and liberty that the Constitution uh, guarantees us. And uh, in the book, I argue, I go through these arguments quite carefully, and, and the bottom line conclusion is that these are, not, uh, these are not constitutional problems that are likely, given the current makeup of the United States Supreme Court, to be taken all that seriously by the Supreme Court. That is, they're not, li they're not likely to be seen as making a law that Congress could conceivably pass to make therapeutic cloning illegal. Uh, actually unconstitutional, according to the Supreme Court, but they do certainly raise constitutional objections that I think provide uh, other reasons to be, uh, to, to, uh, um, to avoid legislation that would, would make um, therapeutic cloning against the law. Stem Cell Century, Law and Policy for Breakthrough Technology, is on sale now. To an extended interview with Russell Korobkin, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. And that's the end of this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. You know, we're getting close to the holidays. And Yale University Press has a book sale going on. I know. Shocking. It's true. With price reductions up to 50%. Pop on over to www.yalebooks.com and look for the half-off sale banner to the left. And, as an added inducement, there's free shipping for any books ordered from the Yale Press website during the holidays. What are you waiting for? Go. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, Go to any podcast aggregator, such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondak, and if any of you comments about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondak. I'm the producer and host of the show. So long until next time. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2007. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.